If you were here last week, you were blessed by our former pastor, Pastor Ben, and his family who were here. And if you remember, he preached from Philippians chapter 2 on the topic of having a mind of humility one towards another. And I hope it was helpful and encouraging to you, it was to me, about how we all ought to be of the same mind, living in harmony and in service one to another. And as Ben was reading through the longer section of Philippians that he was, he was covering in order to get to his text in chapter 2, he covered a verse at the end of chapter 1 that has been of particular interest to me over the last several years. And as he read over it, I was reminded of this great verse. And so I thought that for this morning, before we get back into 1 John, that I would exposit this great text for us this morning. And it's Philippians 1 verse 29. You see it there in your bulletin. And the title of the sermon is The Gift of Suffering. And so you might not have been expecting to hear about the gift of of suffering to you this morning when you came to church, but that's what we're going to talk about today, and it's what we learn here in this verse, Philippians 1.29. And in order to be able to understand where this verse fits in its context, what Paul's talking about, let's begin reading at verse 27, and we'll read through the end of chapter 1. So let's read together Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30, and then our text will be, of course, there, verse 29. Paul says in Philippians 1, beginning in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if I could summarize what Paul's saying, it would go something like this in these verses. He clearly, beginning in verse 27, wants the church at Philippi to live properly, he says, in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And he wants to hear a report that they are, as he says, standing firm in one spirit. And then he makes it clear that he also wants to be able to have the confidence and assurance that they are not afraid of those who oppose them. He says in verse 28 that he wants to be able to hear that they are not frightened in anything by their opponents. And then the rest of the text we read, what we read is really just Paul's explanation of why they should not be afraid of their opponents. And if you mark in your Bibles, you could note these three reasons why they're not to be afraid. In the last part of verse 28, he says that we shouldn't be afraid of opponents because God is going to deal with them accordingly in his time. He says that it's a sign of their destruction. And then in verse 29, he tells us that we shouldn't be afraid of opponents because our suffering from them is actually a gift to us. Don't be afraid of that which is a gift. And then in verse 30, he finishes out by saying that we shouldn't be afraid of opponents because we're not alone in the fight. We're engaged in the same conflict that Paul and many others are engaged in. And that's not going to be our outline for this morning, those three reasons why we shouldn't be afraid of our opponents, although it would make for a good sermon one day. But for this morning, I want to zoom in on that second reason in verse 29 that Paul gives for why we should not be afraid of opponents. In verse 29, we learn that we should join the Philippian church in having no fear of our opponents because of the fact that suffering is a gift. Now, this idea of suffering being equated with the pleasantness of a gift is something that really is hard to swallow. None of us like to suffer, but all of us like gifts, if we're normal. No one ever asked for suffering for Christmas or their birthday. But yet here, Paul is actually saying that we should regard our suffering as a legitimate gift. 
And so for our time this morning, I want for us to unpack what this verse teaches us about how indeed our suffering ought to be thought of as a gift. So with that brief context, let me read again our text, and then I'll begin laying out what this verse teaches us about the gift of suffering. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And I believe in this verse, Paul provides three characteristics of the gift of suffering. Three facets or aspects or characteristics of this gift called suffering. And the first of the three is this, that the gift of suffering is a gift of grace. Suffering is a gift of grace. I hope Paul's sentence is clear to you now that we've read it a couple times, but in case it's not quite clear yet, let me just walk through it to make it as plain as I can what he's saying. He says in verse 29 that two things, if you look at it, two things have been granted to you, or at least to the Christians at Philippi and to us as well. He says, first of all, that it has been granted to them that they should what? He says that for Christ's sake, it has been granted that they should believe in him, first of all. That should be plain. And then the second plain and obvious thing which Paul indicates that has been granted to the Christians is that they should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We're going to talk about that part about believing in him in another point. But for this one, we need to make the clear observation that Paul says that suffering has been granted to the church. In the... English Standard Version that I've read from, many of you I know have that on your laps, you see the phrase, it has been granted to you. And most English translations use the word granted. King James says given. It's been given to you. Either way is really fine. But the sense of this word really has to do with the bestowing of a gift of grace. It's what you give to someone that you think highly of. It's like when you think of something valuable that you want to give to someone in order to show them how much you really love them. And we know this to be the case when we examine this this word in its original wording from, from the Greek, along with and even how Paul uses it in other writings. The word for granted here in the Greek is the word akariste, akariste. And at its root is a very, very important New Testament word, the word charis. You might see in that word the idea of charisma or charismatic. That's where we get our English words from that original Greek word. And it's translated in some way everywhere in the New Testament with the idea of grace or graciousness. It's something given to someone out of love. It's a really important word in the New Testament. So Paul isn't merely using any generic word for give or bestow or hand over or let me just pass along something to you. No, he uses a very specific word here when he says that this suffering has been granted to us. He's not saying that suffering is is blindly handed out to people. Let me pass this along. He's not saying that suffering is scattered around to people in the way that a farmer just kind of throws out his seed to the ground without much precision or care. He's not even saying that suffering is like a wage that is given to you because you've earned it. And you get it and say, oh yeah, this is mine. It belongs to me. Paul is saying that suffering is like a lavish gift that a husband gives to his wife just because he loves her. It's a gift of grace. He's saying that suffering is like a a special outing that you plan for your child just because you want to show them that you care for them. He's saying that suffering is like that special gift, you know, parents, that you keep tucked away behind the tree for everyone to be to be given last on Christmas Day because it's the best of all. That's what a charis, a grace gift is. And we know this because of how Paul uses this very same word in other places in the New Testament. 
In Romans 8.32, I think when I read this verse, you will get a sense of the greatness of this kind of gift. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, that's the same word, graciously give, in Romans 8.32, as what Paul uses here in Philippians 1.29 to talk about the giving of suffering. The two words translated graciously give are from the same word there. And in Romans, the word refers to how God has given us all things up to the greatest possible gift, his own son. There's no greater grace than giving us his son. And Paul says essentially that that same kind of grace is the grace that gives us suffering. Then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12, that we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And that phrase there, freely given, is the same word that we find in, first, in Philippians 1.29. The spirit is the one who helps us to understand that which God has graciously gifted for us to know in his word. We know that God's word is a gift of grace to our hearts. In the same way, suffering is that kind of a gracious gift. And then we even come across the word used to describe the nature of how God has been gracious to us in forgiving our sin. Paul says in Ephesians 4.32 that we are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The word forgave there about how God has forgiven us in Christ is the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 1 to talk about the gift of suffering. So this granting of suffering is something that is given out of the depths of God's grace. Just like Christ is given to us out of the depths of God's grace. Just like his word is is given to us out of the depths of his grace. And just like the forgiveness of our sins is given to us out of the depths of his grace. Paul is saying in Philippians 1.29 that suffering, the gift of suffering, is put on the same level as those other things. It's truly astonishing. And that's hard to get my mind around. It's hard to see that Paul would talk about suffering in this way. It's not difficult to understand that Christ is given to us as a gift of grace. It's not hard that, to see that the Holy Spirit applies God's truth to our minds as a demonstration of his grace. And it's not hard to see that forgiveness of our sin is a manifestation of God's grace. But we would likely be very slow to list out suffering on that same list of demonstrations of God's graciousness to us. But we must come to see our suffering in that way. Just like the gracious gift of the Son, just like the gracious gift of the Spirit and the Word, and just like the gracious gift of forgiveness, so also our suffering is a gracious gift. I find that a little bit hard to fully understand, actually a lot hard to fully understand, if I'm honest. But in order to truly help me personally wrap my mind around the fact that my suffering is a gift of grace, I thought of five specific ways in which my suffering shows me God's grace. And I'm going to phrase these in the first person, if you don't mind. I'm going to use I and me here when I talk about these because I'm the one who needs to hear these words this morning, to be honest. But feel free to act as if they're directed at you, because really we all need this. We all need to hear how our soul must comprehend suffering as a manifestation of God's grace towards us all. So here are five ways in which suffering is a gift of grace. First of all, suffering, and they're listed there in your outline in the bulletin. First of all, suffering lessens my attachment to this world. Or diminishes. Suffering lessens or diminishes my attachment to this world. It loosens my attachment to this world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his followers 
to not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul exhorted wealthy Christians to not be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And then in Hebrews 13.5, we are all commanded to keep our lives free from the love of what? Money. But my friends, these things are all so very hard to do, especially in our modern context. In the modern Western world, we have so much wealth compared to other places in the world, compared to our brothers and sisters throughout history. We are very, very wealthy. And since it's so easy to become ensnared by the delicacies of this world, especially for us in America, what does God graciously send to us in order to loosen our attachment to all this stuff that we have around us? He sends us suffering. He sends us pain and adversity so that we might not become enamored with all the things we have around us because it is a snare to our souls to be so enamored with all these things around us. So it is a grace to me. It is a gift to me from God that I suffer in order that I might have my attachment to this world be lessened. Then there's a second and complementary reason why I should consider suffering as a grace. First of all, suffering lessens my attachment to this world. But secondly, suffering increases my longing for heaven. Suffering increases my longing for heaven. Each of the verses I read just a few moments ago actually have a second part to them. A part which instructs us to focus on the life which is to come more so than the life which we now endure. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Look to heaven, he says. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.19 that we are to be, instead of laying up treasure here, we're to be storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future, so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. He's basically saying what we have right now is not true living. But if you attach yourself to that which is to come and long for that, then you're preparing for truly living. We need to be doing that. And there's just a few verses after telling us to not love money. The writer of Hebrews teaches this. For here on this earth we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. But... It's so hard for us to do that, isn't it? It's hard for us to invest in that which we cannot see. We don't really have to think too hard about how poorly we tend to seek that which is above. We, we do a really bad job of it usually. One of the most prolific false teachers of our day, you know his name, Joel Osteen. And he is well known for a book called Your Best Life when? Now. now. And it's a bestseller in American churches because the American church doesn't know that suffering is a gift of grace to help us realize what? That your best life is the next one. Your best life isn't now. Your best life is the one to come. And suffering reminds us of that. And so if you write a book and get people to try to eliminate suffering, then you blind them to the reality that the best is to come. And if all we have to look forward to right now is this life, then we're a hopeless people. But suffering comes to remind us of our longing for the better, which is the one to come. When we suffer in this life, we grow less and less of a taste for what can be found here. We know that to be true. And we grow more and more enamored with what can be found there in the life to come. No pain, no sin, no temptations, no sin, no difficulty, no sin, no enemies, and of course, no sin. 
And so our sufferings help us to gain a deeper and deeper appetite for heaven. So they're a gracious gift, aren't they? They help us long for the better for heaven. One more verse on this point, 2 Corinthians 4.17. This light momentary affliction, in the moment it doesn't sound like that, or it doesn't feel like that, light and momentary, but that's what it is. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Suffering is a gift of grace to me because, as Paul says in that verse, it prepares for me an eternal accumulation of glory beyond all comparison. And so it is that suffering increases my longing for heaven. And so it's grace to me. And the third reason why suffering is a gracious gift is this. Number three, suffering forces me to recognize God's sovereignty. Suffering forces me. To recognize God's sovereignty. Have you ever wondered how it is that non-Christians are able to cope with this life? Have you ever pondered that? I know I have. Or maybe you remember what it was like to try to cope with life before you became a Christian. It didn't work out very well. It must be agony to try to fit the pieces of this broken life together apart from Christ. And I feel as if the only thing that keeps me from falling apart sometimes in the midst of of things I go through is the recognition of the fact that God truly does control everything. That's the only thing that holds me together. If we do not understand that principle, then what hope is there at all? None. Sometimes when life is not hard, sometimes when there are not manifold sufferings that plague us, in those times we are quick to forget that God rules over everything because our life is working pretty much okay. We might begin to think that we are the masters of our own destinies in those times. We may start imagining that we can do anything we can put our mind to. We might become those who forget to say, if the Lord wills, We will do this or that because we think we can do anything we want. But when we are in the grips of pain and hardship, we are forced to wrestle with the hard truths of God's sovereignty over everything. We have to, in those times, realize that God is all-powerful and that he is all good, and that he is all wise. We have to realize that God has all things traced out according to his perfect plan from eternity past. And we must realize in those times that in his power, in his goodness, in his wisdom, and in his perfect will, he has ordained for us what? Suffering. And I say that we're forced to come to that truthful conclusion because there simply is no other satisfying conclusion in all the universe. If we're just a random assortment of molecules and bad things happen to us, then oh well, bad things happen. And there's really no way to figure out any any end to it. Thinking of God's sovereignty is the only thing that makes it make sense. So do you think it is a good thing for us to think rightly about God? Do you think it's a good thing for us to know the truth of God's perfections in an intimate way? Is that a good thing? Of course it is. And so if there would be a way for God to force us to come to know those blessed truths about his nature better, would we not conclude that such actions on his part were gracious? If God forced us to know him better, is that a good thing for God to do? Of course it is. Consider Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Then a few lines later in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. There's a a poignant set of rhetorical questions that one faces in suffering in Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations 3 verses 37 and 38 Jeremiah writes these rhetorical questions about his suffering. He says, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? It is, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? 
or that both good and calamity, as some translations put it, come. And so because of these things, I must see that my suffering is a gift of grace because my suffering forces me to reconcile my circumstances by thinking properly about the sovereignty of my God. And I think we all know what it feels like to be in that spot of immense difficulty and suffering and yet you're, you're at the end of yourself to know how to figure it out. And what must you do? You must give all things over to the sovereign control of your God. Because only he knows the end from the beginning. Only he knows how this works out for good for you. So suffering forces us to understand the sovereignty of God. Fourthly, the fourth reason why our suffering is a gift is this. Suffering shepherds me to see the depths of my own sin. Suffering shepherds me to see the depths of my own sin. It like opens the door to my own sin and says, hey, look at that. Because I tend to not want to go look at that. For this point, I want to take us back to the verses I just read in Lamentations 3. In, in that section of verses, there are three questions in a row in that chapter that, that the sufferer must face. And I already read the first two. They had to do with coming to grips with God's sovereignty over both the good and the bad. But then he, he says another question. He says, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? And then the third question that he asks right after this brings us to realize that our suffering is always connected in some way to our sinfulness. Jeremiah writes in Lamentations 3 verse 39, the next question, Why should a living man complain? A man about the punishment of his sins. We have to realize that none of us are so righteous that we have become exempt from suffering. Now, it might be that you are suffering on account of the direct sin of someone else. That's maybe often the case. Or you might be suffering because of an evil enemy who is angered by your righteousness. Your hardship may seem to have nothing at all to do with any particular sin that you might have committed. Those things and others might be true. But we have to see that the mere fact that we suffer for any reason at all is because we rightly remain attached to our sinful bodies which have committed innumerable crimes before God. The fact that I suffer reminds me that I'm still attached to this body and in this body I personally have committed all sorts of sins. And so it is not unjust for me to suffer in this body. Listen to how Job's friend Eliphaz puts it in Job 5 verses 6 to 7. He says, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Do sparks go up? Yes. Do men have trouble? Yes. To put it another way, trouble and agony and suffering do not just randomly or accidentally happen to humans. It doesn't just sprout up from the ground magically without reason. Oh, how come I'm suffering? This doesn't make sense. And this is because we're simply born for trouble. Because we're all born in sin. To be a sinful human is to be a suffering human. Or essentially to be human, since we're all sinful, is to be a sufferer. And suffering forces us to recognize that. We must all become crushed in spirit when we recognize our suffering because our suffering is always a reminder of our sin. Even when we suffer on account of persecution, even in that we are reminded of our own sin. None of us is perfect and none of us has earned a get out of suffering free card. None of us have that. And actually, if we're honest, we would all realize that we don't suffer nearly as much as we ought to for our own sin. I'm sure you've put those pieces together. If we really were to suffer the way we should have for our sin, how many sins have you committed in your mind and heart that have not been caught? 
that you should have been disciplined and chastened for. And yet we don't suffer for those. And so in these ways, I can see that suffering is indeed a manifestation of God's grace to me because suffering shepherds me to see my own sin. And then we come to the fifth reason why suffering is to be thought of as a grace from God. Fifthly, suffering demands that I be humble. Suffering demands that I be humble. We're all familiar with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. I believe it's most likely that this thorn in the flesh, which was described by Paul as a messenger of Satan, was actually a, a demonic presence in the church in Corinth that left, was left there by God's decree so that Paul would not become puffed up. He says he had great revelations and he gave these to the church and it was a monumental work that he did in Corinth there and Paul was going to be tempted to be proud. God deliberately didn't let the congregation mature as Paul hoped they would simply for the purpose that Paul would remain humble. That's pretty humbling, actually. The great apostle Paul was so inclined to boast that God had to send a demon into the congregation to seek to tear it apart in order that he might not become arrogant. And if Paul needed that kind of humbling, then certainly we do. If Paul's humility required him to suffer at the hands of a demon in the Corinthian congregation, then what must my humility require? There are times in our lives when we think that it must require an awful lot because sometimes our suffering feels overwhelming. Surely Paul felt overwhelmed by this demonic thorn, just as we feel overwhelmed by whatever plagues us. But we ought to try to learn the lesson that such suffering is trying to teach us, the lesson of humility. And so God graces me with the gift of suffering so that I might become humble. Let me wrap up this section by reading a couple of verses for us that help us see even more clearly why humility is such a good thing for us to have. If God's grace leads me to humility, and it does, notice what the following verses tell me that humility leads me to. So God's grace brings me to humility. Well, what does humility bring me to? James 4.6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then 1 Peter 5.5. 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the, the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Notice what is the fruit of humility. God gives more grace to those who are humble. So God graciously gives us suffering so that I might be humble, so that he might give me more grace. It's simply grace upon grace upon grace. And so I hope it's become clear to us that suffering is indeed a gift of grace. And here are the five reasons why. Suffering lessens my attachment to this world. Suffering increases my longing for heaven. Suffering forces me to recognize God's sovereignty. Suffering shepherds me to see the depths of my own sin. And suffering demands that I be humble. You might even think of more reasons. That's just my personal little list that I came up with. All this we learn from understanding what Paul means in Philippians 1.29. And he says that it has been granted to us to suffer. But we also must observe in this verse, back in Philippians 1.29, that we have not merely been granted suffering. Not only suffering have you been given out of God's grace. We actually kind of skipped over it earlier, and we're going to consider it now. But look again in Philippians 1.29 at the fact that Paul says that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Notice that Paul is clearly making a connection between the gift of suffering and the gift of faith. There's a connection between the gift of suffering and the gift of faith. And so we come to the second characteristic of the gift of suffering. Not only is suffering a gift of grace, 
But secondly, suffering is also a gift that comes packaged together with faith. Suffering is a gift with faith. It comes with faith as an added bonus gift every time. If you've been gifted suffering, it means you've also been gifted faith. And we can think of it the other way around too. If you've been gifted faith, and that's the one we're quick to say yay to, yay faith. But if we've been gifted faith, what does it necessarily mean we've also been gifted? Suffering. And I think that these two complementary ways to view the connection between faith and suffering are very important for us to understand. We must understand that faith comes prepackaged with suffering. And so if I have faith, what do I know is coming? Suffering. We need to know that. But then we need to know the opposite too. If I suffer, what comes prepackaged with my suffering? Faith. It's going to be there if I suffer. So let's consider those two things quickly. Take the first of those two ways to think of it. That faith is gifted to us with a side dish of suffering, as it were. When we think of it this way, we are encouraged to gear ourselves up for whatever lay ahead in life. And that's a good thing for us to do, to be ready. When we think of it in this way, we remember some things that Jesus said to his disciples. Consider Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, if you are going to claim to have been given the gift of faith in Christ, if you are going to claim that gift, then you had better be ready to accept the gift of suffering as well. Because you have to give up the approval of your family. And according to Jesus, you have to be willing to give up your own life also. And then think about what Jesus taught in the, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 9. He said, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So if you want to claim the name of Christ, and I know we all do, if you've been given faith in him, then you must be ready to be given over to be put to death if your suffering should require it of you. Again, faith and suffering come packaged together. And then there's John 15, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would, not, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And essentially, Jesus is teaching us that if he has chosen us to be out of the world, which is what he says, if he has gifted us by his choice with the gift of faith in him, then it will be true 100% of the time that the world will hate you. So the gift of faith is always served up with suffering. And this thinking prepares us for what might lay in wait for us at any turn. We never know what kind of suffering Christ has prepared for us. We simply know that suffering will be granted as a gift because our faith has been granted to us as a gift. And the two come together. But then there's a sweet comfort that comes to us when we think about it the other way around. If we are prepared for readiness... When we remember that our faith brings suffering along with it, that makes us ready for the suffering, then we're prepared for rest when we remember that our suffering comes prepackaged with faith. You see, there will never be a moment of Christian suffering that will occur in our lives in which we will not have faith along with it. You won't lose your faith even in the darkest of adversities. And not only will you not lose it, Paul indicates that it actually grows stronger the more we suffer. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4.16. Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, suffering, he says the inner self is being renewed day by day. And then even more than that, 
what we find to be true is that the deepest suffering actually serves to reveal to us the true nature of our faith. Consider what Peter writes to the scattered churches in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And here's the purpose. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying there is that genuine faith is worth more than gold and that only testing proves that it is truly genuine. So we must suffer in order to know that we have the real thing. And may we never fail to see, even in the darkest of suffering, that God has not given one thing without the other. With suffering, 100% of the time comes faith to endure it. You will always have at your disposal your faith, even in the darkest of suffering, because God never gives the one without the other. And I hope that up to this point you've been encouraged by the practical points that Paul brings to our attention about our sufferings in Philippians 1.29. I know they're encouraging to me to see that suffering is a gift of grace and how it is a grace and that my suffering is a gift that comes with faith. But I want to see, I want you to see that what we've covered up to this point, it all pales in comparison to the point that comes next. If suddenly we somehow found everything that we've studied this morning is false, and we won't, but if suddenly it all was rendered null and void in front of us, then we would still be compelled to delight in our suffering on account of the greatness of this next point. It's a wonderful thing to realize that our suffering is a gift of God's grace. And it's a marvelous thing to realize that our suffering comes packaged together with this faith. But it's beyond description to realize that our suffering is actually a gift for Christ. That's the third characteristic of our suffering. Number three, suffering is a gift. Our suffering is a gift for Jesus. Notice Paul's language in our verse, and he, and he makes it twice, makes the point twice. He says, For it has been granted to you that, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, what does it mean that our suffering is for the sake of Christ? What does that mean? We could take it to mean that we suffer because he did. And that's not wrong because Jesus said that we would be hated because he is hated. Or we could also think of it in the sense that we suffer because we have taken his name. We call ourselves Christians. And so we're afflicted because we do all that we do in the name of Christ. And even though neither of these are deeply inaccurate at all, I don't think they really convey the plain meaning of Paul's sentence. Consider this simple, maybe silly example. When I first got my driver's license when I was in high school, my mom would sometimes, slash often, say to me after I came home from school, will you run to the grocery store for me? How convenient now that I have a driver's license. And so I was granted a job in the place of my mom, and it benefited her for me to have that responsibility. She gave me the gift of going to the store really for her benefit. Totally fine, legit thing for my mom to do. I know she listens to these, so I need to say that. And I think that that is the sort of idea that Paul is conveying in this verse. That something has been given on behalf of Christ. The best I can tell, as I've looked at the specific prepositions that Paul used in this verse... It seems very obvious to me that he's saying that our faith and our suffering are both given to us because it benefits Christ. It's given to us because it brings benefit to Christ that they are given to us. 
Both times in this verse, when we read the phrase, for his sake, we find that Paul used a preposition which is often translated in the New Testament, in the place of. It's the for, which is used in verses like John 10, 11, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. How does Jesus lay his life down for the sheep? He lays his life down in the place of the sheep. For the eternal benefit of the sheep. And so it is almost as if Paul is saying that our belief in Christ and our suffering are given to us as if they were, be given, they were being given to Christ. Or that we would believe and suffer in order to benefit Christ in some way. Or maybe it helps to simply put it this way. We have to realize that our suffering is not all about us. Rather, we suffer because Christ is pleased that we do. Our suffering is about him. Our suffering is for him. It is to his benefit that we suffer. And here is the clearest way that I can try to help us understand what Paul's teaching in this verse actually means for us in relation to Christ. First, about believing in him. It is to Christ's benefit that we believe in him because our faith causes us to belong to him. So it benefits Christ that we now are his sheep because we believe in him. But then it is also to Christ's benefit that we suffer because our suffering causes us to become like him. Not only to belong to him, that's faith, but our suffering causes us to become like him. Or to put it this way, faith makes us become one of his dear lambs, but suffering makes us to be formed into his very likeness. And so we should understand that the chief benefit of our suffering is not anything pertaining to us. The chief benefit of our suffering is the fact that Christ's people become like him through it. It's one thing to think of all the benefits of how God graciously weans me from earth and makes me long for heaven and how he helps me see my sin and understand his sovereignty, helps me be humble, helps me have my faith refined. Those are great things for me. But the greatest benefit of my suffering doesn't go to me. It goes to Christ because I become like him. That thought needs to be implanted deep within our hearts so that it dominates our thinking while we are in the midst of any dark adversity. Consider just the few following verses. Paul says this in Colossians 1 and verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. How can there be something lacking in Christ's afflictions? What is lacking in his affliction is actually our affliction. His affliction is only partway filled because his people need to be afflicted to fill it all the way up. That's what Paul's saying. Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 5 that we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And then he tells Pastor Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's 2 Timothy 1.8. And then Paul writes of this very thing in a very compelling way in chapter 3 of this same letter to the Philippians. So turn over there with me, if you would, as we close to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, we read this. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So we share in suffering for the purpose of becoming like Christ. And if we cannot think of any other practical benefit to our sufferings, even though there are many, as we've already observed this morning, even if we cannot think of any other solace in the bitter depths of affliction, nothing comes to your mind and you can't think of any good reason why you are being afflicted. If nothing else, may you at least be able to remember that your sufferings brings Glory and honor and joy to Christ because your suffering makes you like him. So our suffering is a gift of grace. Our suffering is a gift with faith. And our suffering is a gift for Christ. Let's pray. Help us, we ask, Father, to truly understand these difficult realities about suffering. We cannot escape suffering, but we also need to realize that that is a good thing for us. Because our suffering is a gracious gift from you to provide many good things for us. And suffering is something that comes with faith. We never have to suffer apart from our faith in Christ. But most wonderfully of all, when we suffer, we get to give something to Christ, our master. He's given the gift of the suffering of his people. May we think of him and honor him so that we might suffer well in receiving this great gift of your grace. We ask it in his name.